Hello. Hi, everybody. Hello, hello. We are Alvin Court from Dandelion Branding, and welcome to Environmental Podcast. Yeah, this is our podcast where we choose topics around sustainability and we talk about it from a lens of social and environmental activism. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we have been talking about the fast fashion industry for the past few weeks and fashion in general, clothing textiles last time, kind of how Mm -hmm. fabrics are, are made last time. That was really cool. Yeah, like what to choose, choose organic and recycled. I think that that's pretty clear already, but learning about all the different options and how they're made was really interesting to me. Definitely, yeah. And how so much of it is basically just um, marketing terms. Yeah. Yeah, and today I'm going to be diving into manufacturing a bit and some of the issues that exist in that aspect of this like supply chain. Um, Because that's kind of how we're breaking it down is sort of like, okay, like from like literal beginning of fabric, okay, how things are actually manufactured, and then we'll sort of get into transportation, retail, and stuff like that, and kind of like every every step of the way. Um, and this was a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, I think that just to kind of start, I'm going to give, I guess, a little bit of like numbers to um, kind of show where we're at in terms of how much people are consuming. Um, right. And then kind of go into a little bit of like the history of why clothing manufacturing exists in the way that it does, where it does currently. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, so yeah. (sighs) Yes. Let's brace ourselves. Yes. I did my (laughs) date. So, um, Yes, for everybody. So, oh, good. Yes, okay. We're getting some good. Everybody vibes. Good vibes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm nervous. I don't feel ready. Okay. I mean, it's not necessarily like groundbreaking information that we consume a ridiculous amount as a as humanity. (laughs) Globally, about 80 billion pieces of new clothing are purchased every year. Um, And that translates to about, to to like $1.2 trillion um, annually that's kind of circulating within the global fashion industry. Whoa. This is a big, 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 big industry. And the majority of the products that are made come from China, right now at least come from China and Bangladesh. Um, And typically the U.S. has been like the biggest consumer of the clothing that's made anywhere in the world. Um, But that is sort of shifting, which is interesting um, that... I came to find that actually like a 
por- a good portion is actually kind of going to countries like India and Pakistan and kind of more um, where there are there's more affluent areas of those countries and um, so that that was something that I thought was really interesting um, that the actually now the percentage of of clothing that's actually that's getting shipped to kind of other countries not america is really increasing Um, is there any indication of like why that is is it just like there's more money over there than there has been or yeah Yeah, i think it's kind of that um india is population is also just totally it's, it's huge so yeah, not all the clothing is, is for Western markets. I think that, that there just are other countries that are kind of, their economies are growing and there's a growing kind of upper middle class and mm-hmm. that tends to be connected with consuming fashion items. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And in, in India's population is massive, so. Super massive, yeah. And perfect. so, yeah, it's it's like, we're, it's not just Western markets that are of like kind of taking advantage of the low cost, fast fashion industry. Um, yeah, about, I, I think, yeah, 50, 56% of the clothing actually produced in China is for the Chinese market too. So like, that's a, that's another kind of growing market of, of consumers, <laughs> stuff, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. So it's not just a U.S. problem. Yeah, definitely not is, just a U.S. problem. Is yeah. it a monetary, because it's so often touted as like a Western issue, but is that a, like a monetary thing um, or is it just uh, well, hmm. a false narrative? I think it's tough to say. I mean, I think that as countries grow their economies, the people want to experience a little bit of affluence more than they have in the past. And mm-hmm. they're, they're exposed to American culture. Everyone is. And that's kind of the example that we've set for how to live a middle-class life, how to be cool, how to be, you know, we're, we're that, we're really like spearheading that narrative of buy, buy, buy all the time, be cool trends all the time. And so as these, these economies are growing in other places, other people want to be a part of that, right? Like it's, we're, we've made this fucking club Mm-hmm. That actually is sort of really shitty, and but everybody wants a piece of that, you know, because they understandably, right? Like, yeah, America has really positioned itself as like the leader of cool things in the world, and knowing what's cool and trendy and setting all of these trends globally, mm-hmm. and uh, so it kind of trickles down from there, I suppose. Got it. Yeah. It might be a little bit more nuanced than that, of course, but that's, that was, that sort of my understanding of it is that, yeah, they just, they want to live comfortable middle-class lives too. And 
that does come with a connection with like caring about your appearance and wanting to be a part of trends like any young person wants to you know yep um and a lot of those like places like in China and India massive young populations you know huge 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 and um and it's a lot of young people who are kind of yeah maybe even choosing not to have children and have some more uh expendable income and really that was kind of how fast fashion began or how the how it started to grow the fashion industry was people started having more expendable income like before that before people had that there was no such thing as impulse buying you know like that didn't exist before like world war ii yeah that's what i was gonna ask is 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 this something that came along with the like plastic industry the and where people were like at post-world war ii you can do anything you can throw everything away consume buy get it yes 100 percent. yeah um that was definitely where yeah it started kind of increasing at at such a rapid rate of course there's always you know fashion has always been a, a way for people to show their wealth and success and power and all of that for Mm -hmm. all of human history but yeah that was a really big shift um just in how the average american consumed not the most Mm -hmm. affluent you know um but um, so the flip side of all of that consumption is that um, 85% of all of the clothing that Americans consume uh, would is ends up in landfills. Um, like within a, a short period of time, right? Like a year or two? That's unclear exactly. Um, it's about 3.8 billion pounds annually. Um, but I don't know how, I don't think that there's like a set amount of time between when they consumed it and when it gets into the landfill, but like, it's just a ridiculous amount, but yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. And, and that rise has really also, we've seen a shift within the last, like, I want to say, I don't have an exact date, but since like the nineties where there there's now like micro seasons we even spoke about that a little bit in one of our previous uh episodes where before this this current a state of fast fashion where these manufacturers are producing like hundreds and hundreds of new looks every day to be sold every day and added to these online retailers like before that there was really only like four times a year where there would be new things sent to manufacturers for them to produce they had longer lead times because it was really more based on seasons and that doesn't exist anymore like out the window some yeah brilliant marketer was like listen just go (laughs) micro seasons what if every day was a season and every day yeah it doesn't matter there are no seasons anymore really like of course there are big you know 
large um, high fashion brands still produce like seasonal fashion shows and all of that. But for the most part, the clothes that like the average American is consuming, like that's, it's not necessarily based on seasons. It's just trends. When a new trend happens, every manufacturer tries to make something that is similar to it. Um, and so it's constant in a way that it never has been before. Um, in terms of like the pressure that is put on manufacturers to have this never ending cycle of what they're producing. That feels stressful. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you say yeah. that there are 80 billion pounds of clothes bought every year? No, that's in the landfills. Oh, what's no. bought every year is 80. Oh yeah. It's a 80 billion pieces of new clothing are purchased every year globally. And, and 3.8 end up in the landfill? That's pounds. 3.8 billion pounds annually end up in landfills. And 80 billion, sorry. Pieces. Yeah, I'm not sure how many pieces okay. would equate to Would a equal pound. a pound. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm trying to see is like, what's that percentage? Got it. <sighs> It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A blanket is much heavier than a shoe or something like that. And this is, and this goes back, I think, to the beginning, even first episode we talked about fashion is like getting the data is so hard and it's so piecemeal. And it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah. How do you? Yes. (laughs) Which is uh, definitely a part that I want to talk about as to um, how it got that got to be the way it is. Um, Cause that's by design. Turns oh. out, turns out, surprise. Turns out that a lack of transparency um, was a, a marketing tactic that worked real, real good. Um, yeah, we'll get there. But that that's that is a really that's something I I thought was really fascinating as kind of how disconnected we've become. Um, Because the only way that we'll consume things that are produced in some such an unethical and disgusting manner is if we have absolutely no connection to the reality in which they're made. So, I mean that tracks, mm-hmm. but there's so much that goes on in the world that surprises me, surprises me, and I guess doesn't anymore about how much humans will deal with unethical or just like turn a blind eye to it or yeah. And I just am called like the native peoples in Canada and like what they're finding at the residential schools and, and coming out about now. And it's been weighing on my mind really heavily. And I think like, so like there's so much abuse and it was just so across the board and yeah, I, yeah, I that feels like something similar in here is like we're so disconnected it's something that used to happen but it's not this like those schools stopped in the early 2000s or like the 90s this is not that's not new and Hmm. it's kind of the same now right it's like people are still being treated horribly Hmm. uh and dealing with very unethical workplace environment yeah uh, yes, I did. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know the, the 
um, all the details about what's happening and with the this this those schools in Canada. Aside from the fact that they've found so so many um, children, um, that yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we I think that that's an interesting point that we do tend to think that these issues were like are we're past them or something we're yeah yeah that or we've solved I, it we never we would never do that if we knew about it but yes we fucking do yeah we still do yeah so that is um yes yeah yeah that is um kind of the, the reason why um clothing manufacturers in particular operate in the way that they do now um because in the 90s there was a big push and a lot of like celebrities were behind this of like they found out that these big brands like walmart and nike were using sweatshops yeah for, for yeah and that was, there was a big movement that was super popular of like anti-sweatshop work. Yeah. And so these brands are now being held accountable for their labor practices in a way that they really hadn't seen before because like previously, well, let's, let's, let's take a step back, I suppose. So workplace safety in general wasn't a thing in the U.S. or really anywhere in the world until there started being some really mass, massive tragedies that uh, where a lot of people were killed. And I think the, one of the biggest ones in terms of textile manufacturing was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory um, that happened in 1911 where 146 uh people died a lot of young women was that in chicago i believe so it was in america somewhere i think in yeah so yeah one of one of those i think chicago yeah um and that event really shifted a lot of like uh, the in terms of actual clothing manufacturing like that's really what made a lot of kind of labor laws exist <laughs> was in in response to that event um in the states in the right? in the states exactly so right so because of those disasters that led to having occupational protections in the united states and the same for in europe but those same standards were not in the uh, like in, in developing countries so that's really why they shifted their production um, to those um, those those developing countries. Yeah, and that's like stuff you know, but so there had to have been like meetings but it's just about like, that. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there. it's just like yeah, that's how that that's how outsourcing is. But it's like think just. Th- think about it though that's fucked up it is yeah and because it was an intentional choice of like oh wow we can't mistreat our employees here anymore what can we do while it's expensive so 
yeah. I need to <laughs> well, make more money. Yeah, the decision was made entirely um, based on profits. So um, that was really the shift of where this kind of global market manufacturers started. Yeah. And there have been a lot of those mass casualty events, not a right word, just tragedies, uh, even recently. Um, yeah, in, in Bangladesh, um, in particular in 2012 and 2013, there were, um, there was actually a, in 2013, there was some, a, what was called the Rena Plaza factory complex. Um, it collapsed, this building collapsed and it killed more than a thousand workers. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely big news. Um, and yeah, in 2012, there was something called the Tarzine Garment Factory fire that killed about 112 uh, people and injured hundreds and hundreds more. Those are really some of the big, big ones. And when people were kind of going through the rubble of these and they were finding what brands of clothes that they were actually manufacturing, that had a lot of consequences. Like, pe like people were like, why is the Tarzine garment factory producing clothes for Walmart? And what happened? How did this, how did this start happening? How did this happen? How did Walmart not know? Or like, what, what's their connection and can Walmart be held accountable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can they? Not exactly. That's, that is, so this is where the tangled web of supply chain begins, I guess, is that Walmart never actually placed an order with the Tarzine manufacturer. Um, oh. actually Walmart had inspected that factory and discovered that it was unsafe and they banned its suppliers from using it a year prior to this event, but Walmart hired a, another supplier who then hired another company who then hired another company who then produced the clothes at Tarzine factory. So it was never like, it was just a mess of people who were involved that were just like in between these middlemen companies, sorry, middlemen <laughs> that don't, that didn't do any of the actual work and that were just like outsourcing it. And then the next one would also outsource it. And, and so all of these people are getting like a cut, <laughs> right? It's insane that there's that level of like indirectness, but. And in the end, wait, mm -hmm. all those people get a cut mm -hmm. of what you purchase at Walmart, but you buy that shit for like 10 bucks. And so then there are like five middlemen 
which really seems like a problem for Walmart actually to deal with. Um, they, yeah, I mean, essentially they just, they've hired people who weren't trustworthy, who then just outsourced the work to other untrustworthy sources who outsourced the work to, a to an unsafe man. They got to tighten up their ship. It's so, and that's the other side of it is that when there are these large corporations that have dedicated manufacturers or that they, where they know that they're working with certain factories, um, the people who do kind of safety audits and audits on um, like just occupational, like what, what's their working hours and stuff like that. The workers tend to be coached to give the right answer. So like if the person doing the audit comes in and asks someone like, what time did you start working today? They'll say eight hours, eight hours. Cause that's, you know, like they know they have, they've like rehearsed the proper answers to give. So that is a piece of this also is that like, like how can one ever, like, what's the actual criteria that we're kind of basing these audits on? And that is, uh, Okay. Whoa. Complicated. Yeah. So need to unpack this for a second. Just this one thing, because this happens everywhere. So, but if, mm-hmm. okay. There, so this facility was a was a garment warehouse for Walmart. Mm-hmm. Walmart deemed it unsafe. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't be. Uh, manufacturer anymore not for walmart at least yeah they, they banned it a, a dedicated walmart manufacturer whatever their internal language is mm-hmm. so then somehow magically a year later they're just remaking walmart garments mm-hmm. without making any changes and some shit went down. And when people ask them, ask the workers questions, they're just like. That's a bit different. So yeah, in terms of the asking the workers questions like that, that was um, that information. That just happens during any standard audit. Yes. Yes. That okay. was not specific to the Tarzine garment factory that I, I don't know exactly what audits they did in order to deem that place unfit or unsafe. Um, I think that was more kind of like structural building that they saw was unfit mm-hmm. um but yeah in terms of like the people being kind of coached to give the proper answers for these okay. these audits that come in that was really just an example of like how difficult it is for people to get real answers yeah yeah even if a company is trying to do all of these things to you know, go to where the clothes are manufactured to speak to their workers, to try to make sure that they're operating in a way that is ethical. That's a, that is an example of 
one of the challenges of, of, of trying to do that, right? Yeah, and that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's so frustrating, but like from a worker standpoint, they need to keep their job. They need to, yeah. probably they're like, if I work 15 hour days, 12 hour days, I can afford my life or I can afford X, Y, and Z. If the, if the dudes come in, we're going to get shot down. If they find out that everybody's working 12 hour days. So we all just say eight hours that we don't lose our jobs. Cause yeah, aren't there, aren't the, a lot of the cities like built around the manufacturing well, or I don't know. I don't know if they're built around the manufacturers, but it's certainly a very big jobs provider. And yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, like if there's a thousand people that work in a single factory, they all live in that town. Likely. Yeah. Likely they're members of that, of that community. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it gets a little bit worse though. Um, so one, yes. So one aspect is that like when you hire a supplier to, that says that promises you, they're going to make things for you by certain standards, it's a bit, you, you never quite know if they're hiring a subcontractor and a subcontractor and a sub, 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 subcontractor. So that's one aspect. Um, and then this, a second is that yeah, it becomes challenging to ensure that you're getting proper answers and that you're not seeing uh, that they're not just kind of putting on a show for the auditor that's there right now. Um, and a third part is that there's actually, this is a quote, for every tailor worker in a factory, there are several employed in homes, workshops, and backyards. Around 80% of workers are informal. These are migrants. These are sometimes people that are being trafficked. They're sometimes, um, you know, just they're not brought on as employees. They're just hired and fired as orders get commissioned. And um, they are paid just like a few cents for every piece of clothing that they uh, produce. Um, so there's no way of tracking that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So 80%? that and that 80% of workers are informal. Yeah. That was in Bangladesh. Um, That's like hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Fuck. So that gets very yeah, that's a, that's a massive challenge. How do you do anything to stop that? You know, like that is really, really scary. And it's, um, a lot of those are, are kids, you know, that are like being supervised by their parents and their home. And they're just, there's no working hours. You don't have to clock in and clock out. You're being paid by the number of garments that you produce. You all, your only incentive is to work one all, around the clock, you know? So that, uh, that was a big, that was, that was 
whew, um, yeah, to hear that, I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. So like the answer isn't even to like necessarily audit your suppliers and go to the factories and make sure that, cause like how, like, how can you know that that's legit, you know? And that, right. And so, yeah. I mean, that was, that was like a really kind of eye opening that, you know, these, it's, it's become, because the Western consumer, the, it, there's a growing number of Western consumers who are in, like very aware and want their products produced in, a, in a, an ethical way and they care about sustainability and they care about traceability. So many large corporations like Nike, like Walmart, like Target, all of it, like they have an incentive to put their information out there to, you know, do these kind of like responsibility, corporate responsibility reports and stuff like that. It's become a little bit standard. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those large corporations do have people that go in and do audits on their, um, their suppliers and stuff like that. But so, so that's good at least. (laughs) So that, and that was in direct response to really in the nineties that mass, the movement. Yeah. Anti-sweatshop movement. Maybe this is just, I don't understand like the difference I think between a sweatshop and this like thousand person garment factory terminology yeah that okay Uh, yeah there isn't one I mean it's like the difference of like cage-free and free-range you know like what like that means you know it I don't know I I I don't think those terms necessarily mean anything in I I think that the term sweatshop it evokes an emotional reaction so I think that that was you know used so it, it's just not used as much, but it seems like there are still hella sweatshops or like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know. Like, oh, we won't case. have sweatshops yeah. anymore. We'll just make the children work from home now. Or yeah. And maybe there's more fans so that they're not inhaling toxic, you know, okay. um, got a fan. I don't know. Yeah. Like what changes actually happened in order to deem a factory, no longer a sweatshop that was once a sweatshop, but still employs thousands of people and still pays them pennies for every garment that they produce. I don't think that there is a difference. I think that it's that we just don't want to call it that anymore. I see. Um, Got it. Okay. I just thought I was confused, but now I see it's it just... is a good question though. I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see, I, I didn't explicitly look for information of like what can, what, what constitutes a sweatshop versus just, uh, one of these mega suppliers, you know? Um, yeah. Or like what, like, not even a mega supplier, but just like an abusive wear manufacturing house. Mm-hmm. 
is that is that a sweatshop i think that it yeah i think that's what it is right yeah i mean the i guess i can look it up real quick look yeah, the i guess like what what's the line yeah um that's an interesting question um what is the line just that it's just that there it's not different yeah the literal definition is a factory or workshop especially in the clothing industry where manual workers are employed at very low wages for long hours <laughs> under poor conditions oh oh i froze that stopped me video there i am um great so sweatshops are just still we just don't call them that anymore because we are fancy now I guess yeah um I mean, I mean yeah I think that some countries do have newer regulations that require ventilation and um light oh um I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just so fucking horrible. It's insane. It's so insane. bad. And Some countries have new regulations that require ventilation and light in their shop with thousands of people. Yeah. I mean, prior to that, they, yeah, they were like, you know, dark basements, no ventilations. People were just inhaling toxic fabric fibers constantly and super hot because there's so many people machines running and just like that's how these tragedies happen was because there's no exits there's no like these are not there's too many people packed into this space and it's literally unsafe there's completely yeah completely in terms of what's the difference between a sweatshop and how things are produced now I really do not think that there's a difference um I but just yeah. like some some companies are doing a better job did you find any information like is it getting better and I'm also wondering does like one manufacturer produce one big business or is there like does a manufacturer like how does that con how does yeah. that contract work? do you have any yeah kind of um well the first question wait sorry um is it getting better was the first question I think but the answer to that was a, a kind of surprising um is it getting better hmm um oddly because there is from a Western consumer's perspective, more of, they, they have more pressure on like these big, big corporations. I'm going to continue to use Nike and Walmart as an example. That makes sense because they're massive global. Mm-hmm. Um, they are feeling the pressure to at least have some sense of uh, where their clothing is being produced to have um, because of some of these tragedies that have happened and also the movement that happened in the 90s. Um, And 
is it getting better? Better? <laughs> I know better is uh, not not a specific I don't think term. I don't think it's I don't think I think that the easy answer or the short answer is uh no, the conditions are not getting better. Oh. Um okay. but I think that like there is a change happening in some of these bigger Western brands that are cutting ties with some of these really awful suppliers. But as soon as they leave, someone will come in and fill that space, you know, like right. that, like yeah. they're you know, like the, the industry is not getting smaller. Um, right. and, and it was in, like what I felt was interesting about how, um, the growing number of consumers in, in India and in China, like they don't, they, those consumers are not yet really interested in sustainability or like, that's just, it's not something that's really like, it's not there yet. It, yeah. So as soon as, you know, as, as soon as a, a Western brand, like they do feel that consumer pressure to have a, like, to not work with some of these really controversial suppliers, but as soon as they leave, yeah, then some other company is going to come in there and produce things for a non-Western market. So the workers are still stuck. And Okay. Yeah, it's, but it's interesting because really the like corporations are just doing the bare minimum to sort of avoid bad publicity, mm-hmm. you know, like that's their main motive. Like, of course they feel the pressure from consumers, but they're going to only do the bare minimum just to not get. Yeah. They don't want to make headlines like before when yeah. you for standard they weren't mm-hmm. making headlines and then like one level of something changed and they were like, Oh my God, I've got to do a little better. And then like, yeah. So got it. Yeah. It makes me so mad. It is. How would you feel if I just like picked you up and just like dropped you in a goddamn sweatshop. Now you have to work there 12 hours a day next to somebody stinking and like working uh, your fingers to the bone. How would you feel if that was your like mom or your yeah. kid? You know. Yeah. God, it makes me so mad, and I'm so privileged to be able to be mad about it. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, it's really, really scary, and it's such an overwhelming feeling to think that that yeah that that is the that is hundreds of thousands of people everyday lives yeah and yeah um, and it's just how it it's just how it is it's just how it is yeah as of as of right now that is how it is and there's not a whole lot of signs that that's really going to change significantly um I do have two tidbits I suppose to kind of 
there are that to kind of highlight that there are changes and there are shifts happening. Um, and I guess, yeah. Um, hmm. The first one I suppose is is a, an interesting one that is a kind of a movement happening in China right now, a lot of young people. Um, and it's called the lying flat movement. Um, fascinating title. Um, that's a, a, just a direct translation. So um, that probably has, it's like a slightly different meaning there, but uh, yeah, literally just lying flat kind of meaning like they are essentially choosing to opt out of this work in this particular work environment. Um, it's young people that, you know, they would have, they're, they're the generation before them had a lot of these jobs in these clothing manufacturers, just really any manufacturer. Um, but these young people know that those jobs are horrendous. They pay little to nothing and you are working your entire life away. And this movement is young people who are just deciding to not participate in that at all. They're not getting jobs in that environment. They are they're choosing to like live in larger groups of people who are also choosing this kind of lifestyle, um, doing different types of work, like a lot of work online, you know, a lot of like can work in um, doing like food deliveries and like app-based uh, kind of independent contractor work um, where they get to choose their schedule. Like that's a huge, like that is a revolutionary to mm -hmm. these folks who have grown up and had their, you know, their parents working around Super the clock, always. you know, yeah. they've seen that. And like China is in an interesting economic space where, yeah, those young people, like they, they feel like they don't have to make that choice to work their life away. And they're actively choosing not to. Um, yeah, I saw a really interesting kind of vice video about that, um, about that movement recently. And I was like, whoa, this is like super connected to, you know, kind of what I was already researching. Um, and it's, yeah, they're just, you know, they're just choosing not to be a part of it. And I think it's really cool, but it is affecting like now instead of there being uh, like job markets where there would be a ton of people who are looking for jobs and it would be, you know, the factory owner that gets to like sift through people and choose mm -hmm. who they want to hire. It's the opposite now. Uh, like the videos that they were showing, it was like the streets were lined with people who were holding up, were hiring signs, essentially. The owners of the manufacturers did not have enough labor. And it I just is... think that that's what's going to have to happen because yeah. we can be mad about it. We can put pressure on the industry, but like, it's got to be from both sides. Yeah. And I am, I think it's rad. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it is, it is the definition of fuck the system kind of, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, 
a, yeah, we'll see how that sort of affects the industry and how that will sort of have a ripple effect, right? Because it certainly will, that they're, they're, you know, as these countries that have been like kind of um, a lower economic status, I suppose, as they grow, the people are obviously not going to take these jobs anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that, and and that will continue to happen. And so, I mean, yes, we'll probably see a shift away from maybe clothing manufacturing in China, and it like might go to places in South America. Um, that was what I was sort of seeing. Was that like? Well, the industry is probably just going to find other poor countries. Um, yeah, but okay, it will just happen over and over again because that's mm-hmm. how it works. That's how that's how this stuff, especially when you see platforms like this, like COP twenty six. Like, okay, I think that that's a lot of fucking words and a lot of really pretty headlines, and we're getting a lot of promises. But what that actually does is it puts all all of the world's countries on a level playing field to have a conversation. And that I think is what is the best outcome from things like the COPs and the like ICP, IPCC Mm -hmm. um, conferences and like the Paris agreements, like it, it, it forces people to look at each other around the world politicians, industry leaders, and say, holy shit, we're all people. That person over there was born luckier than me, but I don't have to take their shit. Yeah. And I really, I feel like that's really the kind of a Clint, like something that's like clutch for growth. So yeah, I don't think it will have the intended effect, but I think we'll see a lot more stuff like this happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now that the internet is in the world, Mm -hmm. um, I do think that that will have sort of a correlation between, you know, people who are choosing to just kind of not participate in some of these really unethical industries and, yeah, I, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, only time will tell, I suppose. But uh, I, yeah, it seems like there is hope because people are not um, as, I guess, down and out, and as like you know, completely reliant on these particular jobs because the internet has opened up an entirely different yeah. set of opportunities for folks and. Um, yeah, but I mean, another kind of the main takeaway, I think, uh, was that there there have been countries that um, have enacted certain like um, kind of government organizations that their entire goal is to ensure like workplace safety and labor contracts and uh, like these uh, kind of 
I guess, like nationwide kind of audits for safety and, and ethics and things. Um, and where the workers have, like they feel empowered to be able to make complaints and that those complaints will not go unheard. Um, I think it was, there was, um, oh gosh, I don't know the particular South American country, but there was one in particular that had tried um, and they like dedicated an entire branch of their kind of government to actually managing these claims. Cause that's, that's really the thing is that like they're in, in, in like Bangladesh and China, there's not like, like who's going to regulate the, these laws, you know, like mm -hmm. they, okay, maybe they make different labor laws and different um, kind of, I don't well, know. Yeah. There's something, laws but deforestation in Brazil too. Right. Right. Who is enforcing them and who is kind of the watchdog agency. And um, there have been some successful kind of examples of that in, gosh, I, yeah, I wish I had it in front of me. I don't remember exactly the country. I have too many tabs open to go back. Um, but that felt good, at least that like there have been successful examples of people being able to make labor unions, they still are producing things, they're still exporting things, it's still like a profitable industry, but done in a way that has um, security and safety in mind. So um, like, yeah, that is kind of the only way for this to industry to change is really for there to be um, like it, it kind of can't be on the individual company to audit their own situation because then they're going to do the bare minimum just to avoid bad publicity right but if I mean, we can hope not but yeah uh, right yes yeah for the most part, big companies put profits over a lot of anything else in terms of their decision-making. So one can assume that that's what they would do. But having an independent agency that has the power to enforce laws and is able mm -hmm. to kind of regulate this stuff, um, that's something that you know can, can happen. That's something that can be enacted anywhere. And that's kind of really the only thing that's going to produce like real tangible results yeah. in terms of in making these working environments better. Fashion um, watchdog. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, it was really an, an interesting kind of journey to investigate this uh, where it was like, wow, okay. So big corporations actually kind of have really worked towards getting a, a more clear supply chain since the 90s. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I was like, I uh, kind of assumed that they would never care at all, but they don't, they don't want to deal with a bad press and they want to be able to kind of show their, the naysayers, nope, we've done this. We have the, our annual report. Mm -hmm. We have all of this information and there is some truth in that. So that's actually kind of cool. That's a good step at least. Um, but all things considered the, like the small business that is actually 
producing what they are selling or at least has, you know, direct ties with no middlemen in between how things are being produced, that is likely still the best source of things if you are really wanting to purchase things uh, ethically and sustainably. Um, and that these kind of like mid-sized businesses, particularly in fast fashion, that are trying to keep up with all the brands, all the bigger brands and keeping up with all the trends, um, yeah, that makes sense. Those are the ones that are really using these really terrible sources and that makes perfect sense. Making and producing their things in 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 sweatshops, literal sweatshops, because uh, they're not yet big enough to feel that consumer pressure to have to have their right. their um, you know. But they want to keep up. Yeah, and I thought that that was really interesting, and and it didn't ever list a name of kind of like what's considered a mid-sized brand. But I think that like, if you're, you know, um, like I want to say, you know, like if you shop at Macy's, there's like a million different like random brand labels, you know, that like they all are different businesses. Yeah. And it's kind of those that I'm thinking are like, I don't want to call out Macy's in particular. It's not Macy's, but it's like those random little brands. It's the like lines that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, or yeah. even like literally any fast fashion, like Forever 21 or. Yeah. Forever 21 um, is a, is a, a really, yeah, they're, they're pretty pretty bad um yeah Shein is a big one s-h-e-i-n um huge online fast fashion retailer um that oh yeah probably like zoo lily a lot um, of like and then there's so much uh white labeling that happens in the fast fashion industry too right like the same piece of clothing can get several different freaking labels put onto it, right? It's really easy to do that. If you've ever tried to start drop shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Drop shipping. Yeah. Um, with the rise of drop shipping has created a lot of these kind of random brands that ex- exist in this space of like, you're not a small business that is creating your own product, but you're yeah. like sourcing things from unknown places. Question mark. Yeah. If you yeah. don't know where Sources, there's a pretty good chance it's a child in the in their backyard in Bangladesh or at the yeah at the worst and at the very best it's someone who is like likely just really not being treated well and working and is very tired and yeah mm-hmm. it, it's um yeah, it was, a, it's a rough topic, but that is um, kind of the gist of, of what I researched yeah. about it. And it felt um, like a bummer. I mean, it is, it, it definitely is, but it's actively shifting right now. And there's so much that's happening right now in terms of like the global supply chains of things. Yeah. Um, like there's a lot going down with that that I'm not fully privy to, but like it is, it's it's there's really hard for a lot of businesses to kind of get things um, yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know the exact cause of all of that. If there's actual shortages of things or if just COVID fucked with shipping. I don't know. From what I understand, it's really COVID fucked with like, like a bunch of the manufacturing got shut down for several Mm -hmm. months. And then like they had back stock and they sent that Mm -hmm. back stock and then that ran out before they could get new stuff made. And then now everything's up and running so they have a bunch of shit that they like it can't come in yeah and it's all just yeah there's just a backlog of like there's a huge company needs things and then there's like a literal like ship gridlock which is confusing like you'd think that they would have figured out after how long have we been shipping things on really big things like literally it's just traffic also kind of a labor shortage here though mm, I don't I use that term sparingly because it's also being used in terms of why everyone is quitting their jobs and that's not the same thing but um but I think I've heard that like in ter- like here like in LA like they were bringing ships to like like near where I live and like Long Beach and other places that are not in the main shipping import areas because there was such a crazy backlog. And I think that that was just like, they just didn't have enough people. Like there just aren't enough people actually working physically yeah. yet here to unload all of these things. Yeah, there wasn't. And there's like, in, in California in particular, I think there's like a new law or something that's, I don't know that's hearsay but I heard that there's like some from my parents that there's some like new laws happening in California that are making like trucking like the trucks that pick stuff up off of the uh docks have to like hit a new standard for like a new sustainable standard but they are but those trucks are huge investments so a lot of them can't run in california anymore and there's like a whole shipping standard that's changing and i was emissions laws yeah yeah the new with the new emissions laws like a lot of the trucking stuff has changed also but trucking companies can't just change their trucks that's that's hundreds of thousands of dollars they would Mm -hmm. have to pay so a lot of the trucks are independently owned yeah, they're independently owned. And then like, how do you, you, you can't just go get a new truck, you know, mm-hmm. or like change your emission standard on a, on a hundred thousand dollar ride rig, you know? Yeah. Um, so they're not able to pick up everything from. Interesting. So there's like a sustainability part in that as well. But to be honest, and people are pissed about it, but mm-hmm. to be honest, like we're going to face bigger changes than being mad about not being able to drive trucks anymore. Like that's just the beginning and that's what needs to be happening. And people can be pit. Like my parents are in Michigan. They're pissed at California because everybody, that's just how it is in Michigan, I guess. And that this is what they're bitching about. And yeah. this is you know like it's global news or no not i don't know nationwide news right now for sure yeah yeah because um it's sort of global but i don't know because i'm american right so i'm like yeah um yeah but like 
you it's true yeah this is just the tip of the this is what needs to happen the countries are all over the place making fucking promises and we're all stoked on those promises and then we think our lives don't have to change but it's like that is not how it goes bro we need to make changes and a lot of those are gonna be things like massive trucks can't can't be operational anymore like yeah that's yeah, what we- I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't know exactly what, uh, maybe what the like emissions laws are that would have affected the like truckers. It certainly seems like that we should have provided an alternative prior to making a job, uh, like kind of like eradicating yeah that but um it seems like that may have happened except for covid kind of actually fucked a lot of stuff COVID up, so. did a lot of weirdness yeah to things are, are a big big mess and and people in general are not willing to like they've now you know we've been seen that like we've been exposed to such a massive global tragedy that people I think have a different kind of outlook on terms of what they want to expect and what their life what they want their life yeah, to be like life feels a little different it hasn't shown out of it we just uh, went back into like we have to wear masks now we might have to go back into lockdown in the Netherlands like huh it's a real it we're not like we're not done not it's not over it's yeah not over. yeah um and yeah, so there's a lot of people that are just like un- not willing to just kind of get back into this status quo of, of, mm-hmm. of working this like nine to five, five days a week, like hamster wheel thing that we've yeah. con- convinced ourselves is the only way to fucking live. Um, yeah. So it'll be an interesting couple of years the next few years for sure in terms of how how we come out of this um yeah I know it's exciting times we live in that's one way to describe it I don't know how else it's to say it. dynamic it is never a dull moment it's a bit relentless um but I do think, yeah, that there's a, there is a, uh, a shift happening and, um, yeah, I'm down. We're for just going to keep reporting on it. Huh? Every, we'll keep reporting on it on every podcast. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Courtney. I feel like I learned a lot. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It was but really, also really feel like a little stressed about it because we don't have an do you think if we like put pressure on the country yeah yes essentially yeah like it's not necessarily that was kind of the interesting consensus that like it's you know yes consumer pressure on large companies does make them at least do the bare minimum so that's good um but we're not really we're not going to be able to buy ourselves out of this issue we're not you know like one yeah it is it is something that we would will have it's a policy issue it is a nation it's a 
yes, it is, it's countries have to make these laws um, to protect workers. Yeah. And yeah, individual companies kind of can't be the ones in control of all of this. Um, and they also yeah. shouldn't be the ones that are making their own rules that they have to abide by. Um, yeah, companies yeah. making their own rules. Like we've seen this over and over again. That doesn't, it doesn't really work out. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's like, there, the pressure has to come from something larger than just like the potential backlash of protests or people, you know, like mm-hmm. um, this was a really interesting quote, like, uh, like even back in the nineties, when there were protests over like old Navy using sweatshops, there were the, the quote is behind the 50 demonstrators, a line of 300 customers stretched around the block. Like there, you know, like it in consumer pressure does a bit, but not everything because there are still people who we've that it's part of our existences we've gotten used to the fact that you can go to any store and buy a shirt for like five dollars or less and what's going to happen when and if that is no longer a thing like that's really going to affect people who are in poverty anywhere um I think with that, yeah, I mean, but it comes down to like, pay a living wage. That's gonna right. <laughs> that is that is definitely an aspect of it. Is that yeah, should... people need a living wage, and also we do need to be okay with not buying new pieces of clothing every week, every month, every however long. Like, like you need to wear what you have, what you the things that we purchase thing like we just have to it's a it's a rethinking of kind of how we are consuming and and I do think that kind of comes hand in hand but it's not going to be an easy transition for people um many you know yeah people just there's a lot of people that just don't care um yeah that's a sad reality there's a lot of people that don't care yeah yeah so but if you're here then you do you care. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to make Thank a theme for... song that just goes, pay a living wage. Ba-cha. Oh. <laughs> I just wrote our theme song. That is, that would help very much, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, that uh, that is definitely a solution. But again, that's the, once again, that's the, you know, nation, national level um, where these changes have to come from. Mm-hmm. Governments have to care about their people and invest in their people. Please and thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's the gist of it. So yeah, awesome. stay tuned for next time where we um, dive into the next, next aspect of this supply chain. <laughs> what do you think would make the most sense to come next? Um, I mean... We, yeah, um, I am, 
I am interested in sort of, yeah, what's happening with retail stores. I know that that was, uh, I mean, there was a huge shift with that for, you know, from COVID. Um, I'm also interested in like the um, kind of secondhand industry a little bit, like secondhand clothing. and kind of what happens once clothing is disposed of or donated, like what happens then? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's a ton of clothes that get that get donated that end up um, like the, that are not resold, that, that just get uh, kind of shipped to various countries for people to pick through and then they kind of just end up in giant piles. Um, and yeah, so okay. like kind of that end of life cycle for clothing I'm interested in. And then also okay. kind of, yeah, physical retail space world and kind of what's happening there. Um, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. What's, what's on your mind? I kind of feel the same. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe we split up again and do another two and then, yeah, see yeah man yeah I mean I'd like to also try to maybe interview a sustainable either a sustainable business owner about like how they choose their supply chains Mm -hmm. or um, maybe and or somebody that owns a uh, vintage shop or a secondhand store we have some on our um, brand directory so we can reach out maybe they want to talk we do yeah yeah, that would be really, really cool. Um, yeah, I think that we are you know, probably thinking of the same people. So that's awesome. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Yay. As we continue to uncover all the intricacies of this crazy industry. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Sweet. All right, I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.